Hello and welcome to the River's Edge Church Podcast, Extra Conversations with Pastor Dave. Today, Pastor Dave will share in 1 Corinthians. We're excited to share another episode with you today. And now, here's Pastor Dave. Hello, River's Edge Church, and welcome back to another conversation of, or another episode of just our podcast, Extra Conversations. I'm Pastor Dave. We're going to jump into 1 Corinthians 11. I think you'll see why as we dive into this why I'm not preaching on this and why it's just difficult to preach on. But it's actually perfectly suitable for a podcast. So I'm going to jump into it. I'm going to read the entire text of what I'm going to talk about today, all 16 verses. So follow along. Um, I, or I'm sorry, it starts out with this. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Verse 1, very easy to follow. Okay, I wish 1 Corinthians 11 was just that, but there's a lot more. I praise you for remembering me in everything and holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and that the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covers covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, in the same way as having her head shaved. For if a man does not cover her head, uh, I'm sorry, for if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she must cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since she is the image of God and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of a woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, then it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Can you see why that's not super crystal clear (laughs) and why churches might have a hard time interpreting this? In fact, there are still churches out there where people wear head coverings because of this passage, where women wear head coverings. But what does this mean? Why is Paul saying to wear head coverings for women, telling women to have long hair, telling men they shouldn't have short hair, what is the, the spiritual significance of all this? So this is one of those things in the Bible. It's not that I don't want to preach. I, I, I'd absolutely preach on this any day of the week. So it's not that I like want to avoid Scripture or anything like that. But it's just that it would take so long. There's so many different possible meanings for this. And it opens up so many other cans of worms. It's almost better to have like a series just on this sort of thing. But... Culturally, I'm not sure if that's super useful at the moment. So I will reserve the teaching, I guess, for here for the podcast. So I do, um, 
I do want to talk for a minute about head coverings. I want to talk about this in the ancient world because there's something that ancient um, medicine can actually teach us on this. So what I want to talk about in this thing, again, is about the ancient uh, medicine authors. This came actually from um, another podcast, Michael Heiser. Uh, he's got a great podcast uh, called The Naked Bible. Michael Heiser has since passed. He's with the Lord. A phenomenal scholar, just one of these people who goes through some of these problem verses and just does a phenomenal job. Um, so I first was turned on to this in his podcast. He has, uh, again, the naked Bible. One of his episodes is on this and it is absolutely wild. He does about an hour literally of what I'm about to share with you. I'm going to share with you literally the Twitter version of what he shared. Um, but he does about an hour of citing references, scholarly references on this. And it really is amazing. So there's one view of head coverings is that there's a Greek cultural element to that. They're in Corinth, they're in a Greek place, and so they got to have uh, kind of match their their uh, culture a little bit here. They don't want to offend their culture. So listen to this, and this is um, I got this again off a uh, started with Michael Heiser, and then I went and researched some of this on my own. And I'm going to read you a few different things. Hippocratic authors hold that hair is hollow and grows primarily from either male or female reproductive fluid or semen flowing into it and congealing. Since hollow body parts create a vacuum and attract fluid, hair attracts semen. Hair grows most prolifically from the head because the brain is the place where semen is produced or at least stored. This is literally from Hippocrates, the guy who did the Hippocratic Oath, by the way. Hair grows only on the head of prepubescent humans because semen is stored in the brain and the channels of the body have not yet become large enough for reproductive fluid to travel through the body. At puberty, secondary hair grows in the pubic areas, marks the movement of reproductive fluid from the brain to the rest of the body. Women have less body hair, not only because they have less semen, but um, also because their colder bodies do not froth the semen throughout their bodies, but reproduce semen evaporation at the ends of their hair. According to these medical authors, men have more hair because they have more semen, and the hotter their bodies froth this semen more readily throughout their whole bodies. The nature of men is to release or eject the semen during intercourse. Semen has to fill all the hollow hairs on its way from the male brain to the genital area. Thus, men have hair growth on their face, chest, and stomach. A man with hair on his back reverses the usual position of intercourse. A man with long hair retains much or all of his semen, and his long, hollow hair draws the semen towards his head area, but away from his genital area where it should be ejected. Therefore, 1 Corinthians 11.4 correctly states that it's a shame for a man to have long hair since the male nature is to eject rather than to retain semen. I told you, this gets wild. This entire idea is something that's backed up by very early science. Now, this is, to us today, we know where body fluid comes from. We know that 
semen does not come from the brain and you know we just know all this stuff whereas you got to kind of hand it to the uh, imagination of of Hippocrates the guy who wrote the Hippocratic oath the, the early medical people they are just making observations about the human body okay well men run hotter therefore they're frothing semen like that that was the that was the um that that was the justification okay women have less body hair well they've got less semen you know and they're colder so that's why but so if you're following along and you're just like totally confused by this the argument that Heiser makes and is backed up by one very obscure thing in the text and I'll I'll show this um the argument that Heiser is making is that in the first century world that you understood hair to be part of the reproductive system. That just like these medical doctors, everybody in the first century world just completely understood that your hair was uh, had suction power. And so for women, when they had intercourse and the semen was injected into the woman and all that stuff, the longer hair would absorb that semen into the body and create a more fertile body. This is the argument. I know it sounds wild. I'm absolutely aware that it sounds wild. But you have to understand, Paul is now going into a section about orderly public worship. And he will talk about people speaking in strange languages and tongues. He will talk about all sorts of things regarding just orderly worship. And this is the first one he does about men and women dressing properly for church. And for women, it's probably not to be a distraction because if your hair is all connected to your genitals, then your hair on your head was considered a reproductive organ. So it's like if somebody had no pants on at church, that would be the equivalent culturally to today. I know it sounds wild in our 21st century world, but this is the argument uh, that Heiser makes. And by the way, many, many, many other cultural anthropologists um, who are who also look at the Bible critically. It's it's incredible, you know, that these sort of arguments are out there. I've, you know, it's like you, you got to really swim in these um educational waters and these academic waters in order to get some of this stuff, but it's, it's absolutely wild. So here's what Heiser says. Um, he argues that a woman ought to cover her head because of the angels. And in verse 10, it says, it is for this reason that a woman had ought to have authority over her own head. And then this little four words because of the angels. Okay. One it's interesting. A woman ought to have authority over her own head. So, ladies, you got authority over your head. You got, and then he argues. Paul would say, "You got to cover that head." You know, if you come to church, and it's because of the angels. Now, this is one argument. I'm going to dive into other arguments on head coverings in a second, but this argument really takes that phrase because of the angels. Why? Well, in Genesis chapter six we see another fall. So in Genesis 1 and 2, you see creation, you see Adam and Eve, and in Genesis chapter 3, you see the fall of humans. But in Genesis 6, 
there's a spiritual rebellion where the sons of God have sex with the daughters of men and create these Nephilim who are essentially the, um, well, look at it this way. In that story of the Nephilim, I know it's that's also a very confusing story. So we're going from one confusing story to another. I'm sorry. It's just the way it is. Um, that is a spiritual attempt to create human eternal life by their own means. You have these eternal beings, spiritual beings, the sons of God, other Elohim, having sex with humans, creating these God-human hybrid. Which, by the way, there is a God-human hybrid in the Bible. And he turns out to be very, very important. And this shouldn't be a crazy story because Christmas is coming up and the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary and Mary conceives and gives birth to Jesus, a God-human hybrid. The way God intended it to be not the way that these other rebellious spiritual beings. So Genesis 6 is a spiritual rebellion. So the argument that these authors are making who look at Hippocrates, I'm probably not even saying his right name correct, um, who look at his work and the medical advice of the day, the argument that they're making is that Paul is concerned about another Genesis 6 type thing. It's like you're in worship And the last thing we need are more Nephilim running around. The last thing we need is another spiritual rebellion because Jesus has come, he's taken the cross, and the last thing we need is, you know, for all hell to break loose again because that's literally what happened. After that story in Genesis 6, God has to flood the entire earth. He has to find a blameless man, Noah, and uh, he has to flood the earth and then recreate all of humanity. So, what Paul could be doing, this is one view that what Paul could be doing here is saying, look, it's forever, it's the protection of the world that we do this. Cover your head. You know, it's, it's for your own protection and it's for your own modesty. Cover your head up. And so, you know, there's a, there's a lot of this. There's another, okay, now that is the Greek idea that was alive at the time. There's another Jewish history, historical idea to this. Here's some of the Jewish history. Moreover, the concerning, I'm sorry, moreover, the covering of the head as an expression of the fear of God and as a constitution of the practice of um, Babylonian scholars was gradually endorsed by the rabbis, even as they stated, however, that it was merely a worthy custom. Um, as it was, there was no injunction against praying with, without a head cover. Um, let's see, there are some exceptions, blah, blah, blah. So my point here is that in some of the Jewish history, it was also an expression of fearing God. Okay. There's another Sharon, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Westfall, Cynthia Westfall wrote a book, um, on, uh, essentially this topic, uh, the book is called Paul and Gender Reclaiming the Apostolic Vision for Men and Women in Christ. And when she talks about head coverings, she talks about them in this honor-shame way. And that some women wouldn't, if they were defiled or if they were worldly, if they were ex-prostitutes, like there were a lot in, in Corinth, they wouldn't wear head coverings because it would show that they're defiled. And what Paul's doing is this great equity deal and saying, no, 
everybody who comes into the church is equal. So we put head coverings on those women just as much as we put them on our women of valor, our women who have um, a lot of valor attached to them. And therefore, there's some equity um, there, and we treat these women who are shamed like they're really worthy and valuable because they are to God. And so that's another argument. So, I mean, to say that there's even three arguments would be insane on this. There are so many theories on this passage. It's what makes it hard to preach, honestly, as a pastor. It's like, where do you start? And what do you say? And what are what are the controlling principles? So I think if I were to preach this, here's what I would do. I think I would break it up into four points. And I think I would try and say what I think Paul's saying. I think I would start with submission. The husband is no more superior to his wife than God is superior to Christ. I think that comes out in the text. This is what what uh, a lot of people would try and take the, what what uh, Paul says here and make it an argument of um, hierarchy. And what they would do, go back to the text here because I got it printed out. Where in verse three, where it says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man. The head of, the head of Christ is God. He talks about this uh, kind of order of creation. Um, and so in this idea of submission, Jesus submits to God. He says he does. But is God superior to Jesus? No, they're the same. So women submits to man, but is man superior to woman? No. No, woman came from man. Woman completes man. Man and woman together are, are one flesh, the, the way that God intended them to be. And in fact, you know, it says pretty clearly, men, in Genesis chapter 2, that God saw that man was alone, and this was not good. It's the only thing that he says is not good, is men not being alone. And so, yeah, I mean, so I wouldn't say that there's any superiority to it, but it's a submission piece. It's a surrender piece. Husband and wife surrender to one another. So let me read you um, a little bit more here. This is out of a different commentary by Pryor, which I found very helpful. The word for head is kefel, on which on rare occasions means the ruler of a community, but normally carries a sense of a source of origin. It's used for the source of a river. So God is the source of Christ. Christ as creator is the source of man. And man, out of his side, Genesis 2, 21, is the source of woman. So a third sense of the word head um, is... Uh, is uh, yeah. It's, it's far closer to this sense of the word source than by than what we mean by leadership. In fact, a couple of chapters earlier, and indeed even in this own text, where it says a woman ought to have authority over his own head. The word authority is brought up in this text a couple of different times, but it doesn't say a man has authority over a woman. It says a man is head of the woman. Again, bringing up Paul's source theology. Paul's kind of the first theologian, by the way. He's the one who has to take Jesus and explain him to the world, 
explain all that's going on. So this is basically what he's saying here is that there is this sort of order of creation. And because of that, he affirms that um, men and women are different. And I think that's really important, by the way. It's important to, to state in our society today that men and women are different. A generation ago, maybe two generations ago, that would have never even been a question. But today, probably because of feminism, we you'll get people say, there's no difference between men and women. Well, there is. There, there very clearly is. I mean, uh, my, my favorite thing that I've ever seen is Serena Woman Williams, the greatest female tennis player in the world, who's probably, I mean, arguably ever existed, was asked, like, if you were in a tennis match between this player, this man player, like, couldn't you beat him? And she laughed at him and was like, oh, no, obviously not. And they're like, well, you're the greatest female tennis player in the world, you know? And uh, she's like, I know, but men are faster. Men have different muscles than women. And I mean, she just made this whole argument about like how she probably couldn't even beat the hundredth ranked uh, tennis player, male tennis player in the world because men and women have creation differences. God created us for different things in different ways. So men and women are different and we ought to behave that way as different. We're not the same. In fact, I mean, our society kind of affirms that today. Like, yes, women could do anything men can do. I'm not trying to say women aren't capable of things. Of course women are. I've got two daughters. They're capable of so much. Women are capable, like, you know, I'm, I'm into cycling and running and I've seen some incredible women in cyclists and runners. I've seen some incredible women preachers. I've seen some incredible women doing all sorts of things, but why are there you know, like jobs that just women have and why are there jobs that just men have? Well, I, I think it's because we're created differently and our society wants to break those barriers down so much today. But it's, it really is just ridiculous because we are made so differently. And I also want to point out here, even in this point of submission, in 1 Corinthians 11, um, Paul verse in verse 5 just kind of nonchalantly throws this in. And this is something you should listen to. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Wait a second. Where do you pray and prophesy? You might do that at home, but don't you also do that at the church? Is Paul saying that women pray and prophesy in the church in Corinth? I think he probably is saying that. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. And this, again, the argument of women in ministry is another can of worms. I've heard people say Paul's order of creation argument um, is, is also used in First Timothy 2, and so therefore, um, it's not just a little letter to Timothy, but it's a biblical command that, you know, as opposed to like uh, greet each other with a holy kiss, whereas we don't do that again today. Well, the order of creation argument is used here in 1 Corinthians 11, and we don't wear head coverings in church. So, you know, which is it? So anyways, the issue, I'm egalitarian. I actually believe in women um, can hold the office of senior pastor. I believe women can preach. I believe all these things about women, and I believe so from a biblical standpoint, not from a cultural standpoint. This is why I think taking feminism and applying it to the scriptures is wrong, 
even though it might sound like I'm a feminist when I say I believe women should preach and teach. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. We, we could dive into that topic another day um, on women preaching and teaching. But anyways, I would start with submission because that's clearly where Paul starts, that we submit to one another. Husbands and wives submit to one another. In, in chapter 7, he did this on marriage. He says, husbands, your body is not your own. Your wife has authority over it. He uses the stronger word authority. And then wives, your body's not your own. Your husband has authority over it is again, a picture of submission. The next one is interdependence. And these are from verses 11 and 12. Um, the interdependence is, is uh, basically what Paul is saying. Let's see. It, it, again, this is from prior, um, the, the theologian. In the Lord, in Christ, the man and the woman, um, husband and wife, are completely interdependent. He has been arguing strongly for the wife to be submissive to her husband and for the attitude to be publicly spelt out wherever God's people gather for worship. Here he argues with equal strength that the two are one in Christ, totally bound up with each other, inseparable, interdependent. It is true physically, but even more true in the Lord. Both the man and the woman owe their existence to God. All things are from God. Christian worship is expressed best when together such married couples visibly give the Lord the glory in their interdependent lives. So again, verses 11 and 12 argue for the interdependence. 11 and 12 say, Nevertheless, um, in the Lord, woman is not in, independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of a woman, but everything comes from God. So married couples, you're interdependent of one another, and you have to give glory to God. That's kind of what Paul is saying here. Um, well, I'm sorry, I got an email. I forgot to mute my uh, mute my uh, computer here. Okay, the next one is nature. Paul uses an argument from nature, and these are verses 13 through 15. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, that it's a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, then it is her glory. For the long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So Paul uses nature as an argument. Paul brings this somewhat complex at times to us, remote discussion to an end by an argument drawn neither by the distinctiveness of men and women, nor from their mutuality, neither from their independence of each other, nor from the interdependence upon each other. He simply goes back to nature. Does not nature itself teach you that for a man to wear long hair is degrading to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. Precisely how culturally universal this actually is may be very difficult to answer. But Paul's major point is undeniable. God has made men and women different. So Pryor, David Pryor says, Viva la difference. No, different, no doubt there are many cultural conversations when it, is, it comes to masculine and feminine roles, jobs and rights which need to be revised and rejected. As creator, however, God intends that men and women should have different but complementary functions. And you could just tell, I mean, it's still valid to use natural arguments. 
Women have uteruses. They have babies. Men do not. This is something particular to women. Men have other body parts than women. Women, you know, we have different chromosomes. We have different makeup. And God is, we all came from God. This is Paul's argument. It's okay that we're different. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is how humanity has carried on for so many years. And, and then David Pryor goes on. Each human being is to give glory to God by being what God intends him or her to be. The man is to be truly masculine and the woman truly feminine without allowing stereotypes of either to dictate our perceptions, but rather being uh, basing our understanding of what is to be fully human on the perfect model of Jesus. The principle will make us cherry of going overboard on the modern theme of unisex. Unisex. The fullness of Christian worship can be experienced only as um, each man and each woman created for God and redeemed by God allow their humanness to be expressed according to God's pattern. So his other argument here, David Pryor, again, um, breaks it down in four ways. Submission, glory, interdependence, and nature. And if I were to preach it, that's probably what I would preach too. Um, but do you see where the waters get muddy here, where it becomes difficult to answer, like, what is this verse all about? I think in a nutshell, it's about orderly worship. I think whether they were going through the Jewish perspective or the or the, the uh, kind of cultural perspective on head coverings, Paul was arguing for modesty of dress in church. And it, it just, you know, you don't want to have a distraction. And, um, it's true of men too. Men could be immodest in church and men could be distracting in what they wear because the focus isn't you in church. The focus is the Lord. And I think that's really important to, to stay, to say, and to think about even when we participate in worship, that the focus is not me. The focus is the Lord. And a lot of times, I guess here's where we'll get practical. You go, well, I don't know. I don't like the worship today. I didn't like that sermon today. Well, it wasn't for you. I'm sorry. I mean, the sermon was for you, really. It was to give glory to God, but it's, it's, for, it's to edify you. But the worship is not for you. We don't sing to you, you know? So I, I'm, I'm sorry you didn't like it today. I think Jesus loved it because it's what people did with a pure heart. And that's, I think what Paul's doing is he's changing the focus in worship to say it's not about yourselves. It's not about what you do. Don't keep going with these distractions. It's about Jesus. So how do we put this verse into practice today? One, spouses, people who are married, I think you got to submit to each other. I think that's important. Um, I've seen the danger of people not submitting to each other in marriage, and usually the danger is that it ends. I've seen um, I've seen the danger of when gender roles are blurred. I think that it's uh, becomes confusing. I think kids today are completely confused by this, and it's our society. So I think that as a church, we need to say uh, men are men and women are women, and that's an important distinction because God created that. I think that we need to give glory to God. I think that giving glory to God is a very important task. 
And when we come to church, that needs to be our main objective. So I hope this didn't further confuse you, but I hope you got a better understanding of 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 1 through 16. Thank you for listening to the River's Edge Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that God has touched your heart through today's message. Please leave us a review and share with your friends. For more information about the ministries of REC, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. See the links in the description.